0: Hi, as always, it's Darren. For anyone that hasn't listened to one of the pods before, I head up the account management and customer success team here at Haggadjobs. This week, I'm joined by Mark Nevins, who for the last 20 years has run his own consultancy, advising and coaching CEOs, future CEOs, and their team board members. How you doing, Mark? Good,
1: Darren. Very well. Thank you.
0: So... I always expect that when we do these pods, not everyone would have come across your profile before. So do you want to give us a little bit of background? Last week, you put it in a funny way that you always work back to front. Um, So if you could walk us in and tell us a little bit about your background, that'd be amazing.
1: Sure. So I do a job that I don't think there's any formal training for. Uh, For the last 20 years or so, I have been the president of a small boutique consulting firm. We work with executives, teams, and organizations to help make their people more effective, to make the organizations run better, doing everything from organization design and development work all the way through what we call executive coaching. And I could talk more about that if you'd like. And I sort of um, stumbled into this career from prior 10 years where I had global roles for two big consulting firms, Booz Allen Hamilton and Corn Ferry. And in each of those roles, I was responsible for all of the human resources functions globally, as well as people development. But back in the, when I started in my career, back in the 1990s, people development and training, particularly management and leadership training, were still very primitive. Nothing like they look today with full-blown programs, business schools offering all kinds of certification programs, uh, entire companies global companies built to help people think about talent development. To your point about always telling the story backwards, I did, like, like virtually nobody else in this, in this career, I did a PhD in English literature, uh, particularly focused on the Middle Ages and Renaissance, and then prior to that, my undergraduate degree was in molecular biology. So I love numbers and facts, and I also think that art is important, and each of these in some way uh, comes into play in my work with executives.
0: Yeah, I, I was hoping you were about to say that—that that what you majored in before. Cause it, it's, it's fascinating that I don't think I know anyone, and I don't think I have met anyone else that has done literature, or, or and then moved into. Uh, so, sorry, did you you went from molecular biology to to literature, and then moved into into your role? Yeah, this is sort
1: of something that I think anybody who was educated in Europe can't conceive of. It's something you can do in the United States, which is I went into my undergraduate degree, uh, which was basically in in science. I was preparing to go to medical school. And then at the last minute, I decided I didn't want to go to medical school, at least not right away. And I thought I'd take a couple of years and read some books and ended up doing a PhD in literature. So it was a happy, a happy sort of um, peculiar career for me because in the process of doing both of those things, I think I figured out I didn't really want to be a doctor and didn't really want to be a university professor and somehow stumbled into consulting, which seems to be a great fit for me. And I think there's a, there's a good story here for, for anybody, and I don't know if this is one of the things you'd like to explore together today, but I'm constantly asking yourself, what, you know, what was I really put on earth to do? Yep. What am I really passionate about? Uh, what am I good at? How do I find a way to wake up in the morning and be excited about what I'm doing. Because it's a, you know, careers are are a long commitment. And if you're not feeling the energy and the passion to get up every day, it's going to be a pretty tough run.
0: Yeah, agreed. And you you touched it already, but obviously, in your background, you worked at corn Ferry previously. So can you tell us a a little bit about how you went from working there, and almost in a like a corporate machine, if you like, to running your own consultancy startup?
1: Sure. Uh, Probably not so obvious from the outside, but not that peculiar when you're inside. So when I joined Corn Ferry in 1999, they had just gone public. And the role they brought me into out of Booze Allen was sort of, there were three parts of it. Number one was very simple. We do not have a very mature human resources function. We would like you to come in and stand up a proper global HR function for a publicly traded company. And I figured that would be something that would be new for me and interesting. And, you know, who knows, maybe I end up uh, having a career in in HR. Mm -hmm. Uh, I eventually, after about a year, realized that was not my calling in life, but that was okay because I learned a lot. And I then hired somebody to run HR. Actually, I hired somebody to run HR in in North America and then in Europe and then in Asia. So we really needed three separate HR executives because even employment law is so different from- The second thing they brought me in to do was to uh, basically rebuild the culture. So traditionally executive search firms are quite sales oriented uh, and not to be, I've got many, many close friends who are really good at their job, who are in recruiting or executive search or headhunting. And I don't mean this to be disparaging to anybody, but the business model is one that really wants you to be efficient and it's about getting people quickly into jobs. And the the person who's hired you to do the search doesn't want that seat open for too long. They want somebody good in it. And the economics are such that the faster you get the person, get a person into that role, the better you're going to do economically because it's a flat fee typically. It's a percentage of the person's first year compensation. So what we wanted to try to do was to help the organization overall think differently about executive search and try to create more of a consulting mindset so i came out of Booz allen hamilton which was a strategy is a strategy and management consulting firm and a very prestigious one and a very sophisticated one so we tried to, to, to kind of reform the the culture of of headhunters to say let's let's think more about how we can be consultants around talent you know it's not just that you need a new cfo But what kind of a CFO do you need? And why didn't the last one succeed? And if you're thinking about the next 10 years, what are the capabilities and even mindset or style of a CFO? Who will be the right kind of CFO above and beyond just the technical specs? And then the third thing, having just gone public, Corn Ferry was growing very rapidly. They were growing by acquisition of many, many boutiques. And then the interest was to create new verticals. So not just executive search, but mid-level search, Um, eventually, organization development, talent management, various kinds of HR services. And it was a wonderful place to be for a couple of years. I learned a great deal. I even got involved in doing some searches to get a feel for the business. When the uh, internet bubble burst in 2001, 2002, like most companies, and at this point, of course, corn was publicly traded, so they had to look out for their, their, their shareholders. They really reverted just to, be, to being a search firm again. So they put on hold all the other things they were trying to do. And at that point, I said, well, I don't really want to be head of HR for a search firm, so I'll move on. But what I'd done along the way is I had gotten very involved in a lot of the M&A work, and we were acquiring boutique consultancies. And I was doing a great deal of coaching of the chief executives of those consultancies, as well as coaching and advising my internal partners who were promoted to run an office or a region or a practice. And so what I said was, and, and with some great, I mean, ironically enough, some great coaching for myself from managing partners we'd acquired who said, look, Mark, you know, you could hang around here or you could go hang your own shingle and you've got everything it takes. I, I, I think I needed a little bit of confidence. I knew how to do it. But the idea of just striding out and starting your own business uh, right after the collapse of the dot-com bubble was a little bit daunting. So that's kind of how I wound up there. And it took me about six months to figure things out. Luckily, my spouse uh, had a nice job at Citibank, so we could afford to pay for our groceries. And six months in, I I sort of started to hit my stride, and I haven't looked back ever since.
0: And throughout your career, you've been in consulting. So what is it about consulting that kind of scratches an itch for you?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I wrote an article about this. Actually, I wrote a chapter in a book about this, this very topic, maybe 20 years ago, because it's not like, I don't think people wake up, you know, when they're 13 years old and say, well, I thought I was going to be an astronaut, but actually I I really want to be a management consultant, or I really want to be a, you know, a people development consultant. Uh, So it was completely serendipitous that I fell into consulting. All I really wanted to do, I was teaching up in Boston, Uh, in, I guess, 1993 or so. And I just, I wanted to live in New York City. That was, the big smoke was calling. Uh, The woman I'm now married to was living here. And I said, this is where I I need to be. And I came down and I, I looked at a couple different jobs and I stumbled into a job with Booz Allen Hamilton and very, very quickly said, aha, there's some things that happen in this profession that are very, very much who I am. And I didn't know this was the case. So it took me a while to figure it out. It wasn't like I said, here are the three or four things that are really important to me. And obviously I've looked at you know, publishing and uh, you know, public relations and management consulting and management consulting is the best fit. It wasn't that at all. So I think that what really appeals to me about any kind of consulting is the following. Uh, you constantly have to learn new things. So you're always pushing your acquisition of wisdom and knowledge and understanding. Uh, And I'm really, if you look back at my career, possibly going into medicine, possibly going into academia, clearly learning is really a driver for me. Uh, The second thing is I really love solving problems. So I don't know how many of your listeners uh, are familiar with the the Myers-Briggs, but in Myers-Briggs, I am an INTJ. And that is the classic problem-solving type. IQ tests, trivia night, I love these things. You know, solving problems is really fascinating to me. And um, and then the third thing is I, I do like helping people. So the if you look back at my career, again, going into medicine, going into teaching, and then going into consulting, each of these is about engaging with people to help them define the problem they're wrestling with, and then help them figure out where to solve it. And solve it not for them necessarily, but solve it with them.
0: No, it makes sense. And I think it's, it's interesting that I look at what you were talking about there, I'm like, that's exactly me. Like, I love quiz nights. I, lo- I love, I uh, love, I love helping people. which is it, 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 and I don't know, and I've said this a couple of times, how I've ended up in the career I have, yeah. because I never intended for it. I went to university. I grew up in Bath, so um, there was not a lot of jobs around Bath, so I went up to Manchester to go to university. Ended up in Cardiff, so I did a circle of the of the UK, and then just ended up in recruitment. And I don't know how I did it, right. and then I've actually quite enjoyed it since. So think, look, if you're, if
1: you're somebody who's interested in learning about many different kinds of organizations, if you're somebody who, I'm not a natural extrovert, obviously, I'm, I'm actually a pretty strong introvert, but there are other things that really appeal to me about meeting new people, understanding how they see the world, learning from them about their experiences. And if, if, if these are the things that really make you excited to get out of bed in the morning, then any kind of professional services, whether it's recruiting, or consulting, or maybe even legal. I think legal gets a little tied up in in technicalities and and, uh, and deep subject matter expertise. But I've got got a couple of friends who are barristers, and um, what's the other one? You've got barristers and... (laughs) You got judges? No, there's the, uh, <laughs> I, uh, anyway. Um, <laughs> I like,
0: I'm like, I'm yeah, don't always get point. my
1: terminology right. Uh, yeah. Anyway, they're, they're the ones who are less likely to be found in the courtroom and more likely to be found counseling okay. behind the scenes, right? Yeah. And it's, it's a wonderful career. I think one of the things the pandemic has taught us is that we really are social animals. And uh, even for those of us like me who are more introverted, not being able to engage with people uh, can be very, very painful. And being able to engage with people, even if you don't think about that as your main driver, does give you an awful lot of meaning in your life. Yeah.
0: And um, we touched on this last week, so I really want to make sure that we get this in for the listeners. But last week we were talking about how, previously to the unprecedented times we're living at the moment, management was quite rigid. But what trends are you seeing in the market at the moment? Are they as a result of what's going on? Or do you think this is just a natural progression on where we would have got to?
1: I think it's actually both. I mean, I think this is a big, hairy, multivariable question. But let me try to parse it out. Sorry, I'll
0: throw in in your curveball. No, it's
1: it's a great one. It's uh, it's just, I mean, we could probably do a semester-long course on this one. (laughs) But I think in very simple terms, what we've seen with the evolution of society is an evolution of management. So... Um, we've moved over the last hundred years, and you can see this in the UK as well as in the U.S., from being you know, a much more of a rigid, structured, class-oriented society, right? And today, you know, in the United States, there always was the fact that anybody could be president, uh, but I think today in a very, very pluralistic, diverse society, the importance of the individual has become much clearer. Now, you can talk about this from social perspectives. You can talk about this from generational perspectives. Millennials expect different things from the workplace. Millennials expect different things from the social contract between employer and employee. The world has become flatter. The world's become more international. Uh, A lot of traditional ways of thinking about social constructs have either been evaporated or have just been kind of pushed off to the side. And so I do think, and this is kind of a a very simple answer, I do think that the expectations of employers from employees have shifted. And, you know, whether or not employees are now in the driver's seat remains open to be seen. But we learned this 20 years ago with the war for talent. And then with the succeeding 10 years with the huge global financial crisis, I think we kind of forgot some of this stuff, but now um, and I think the pandemic is, is also, we can talk about this, ma- magnifying it a bit. Um, what, what your best people are expecting from what the organization is going to provide to them beyond a paycheck has changed, and they're much more comfortable being vocal about it. So when I was younger, you kind of kept your mouth shut and did your job, and you hoped you got promoted. And now people are quite happy to say, this is not working for me, I need something more.
0: I don't know if you saw me typing there, but I was thinking for a second that how things have changed. You touch on internationally how things have changed. I think that's a really interesting point. That if you look at how uh, how the world worked probably 50, 60, 70 years ago, companies were really in their own in their own countries, and they very it wasn't very often that they went outside of that. There's a have you seen the American Factor? It's a Netflix documentary that was made by the Fine. So it was um, it was a Japanese organization that came over and they'd taken over one of the factories in Detroit that had been closed down because of uh, all, all the changes in the automotive industry. And they came in, but they wanted to have installed the same management structures that they had in Japan to the US. Mm-hmm. And obviously US uh, legislation, very different, the way that Americans like to work, very, very different. So it just fell apart quite quickly. And I think that's a really interesting thing to look at that you can't instill the same management structures to one uh, country as, a, as another. But it's also the same if you look at the way that companies are set up from a, a size perspective. If I look at Hacker Job, if we manage to say, uh, if we scale to ten thousand people tomorrow, we would have to change the management structure tomorrow, because I, I just don't think that management. I think management is based on the moment of what you can do at that, at that time, whereas. If you are keeping that to 10 years down the line, not changing anything, stuff falls apart quite quickly, stuff breaks.
1: Yes. No, I th- look, I, again, I think there's about a book's worth of uh, interesting insights on in what you just said. And I would call out a couple and we could go deeper into any of these. Uh, one of them is that I do passionately believe that it is the job of management to set and curate culture. And even if management doesn't think that's their job, it will be their job. And that culture, for better or for worse, will be a result of how they think about or don't think about setting and curating that culture. Culture, obviously, is all about values, ultimately. What's important to us and what's important to me. And look, in in my job, I've had the pleasure and privilege to work across many different industries, many different countries. I think I've, I've traveled or worked or taught in, something like 60 or 70 countries in my life. And I find it endlessly fascinating that just sort of the tacit understanding of how a group solves a problem is completely different in Bangkok than it is in London, than it is in Los Angeles. It's just completely different somehow. And then of course you overlay an investment bank versus a media company. Vers- I do a lot of work with not-for-profits. I have a, uh, I have a sort of a pro bono urge yep. in me. And every year I'm working with, with either a university president or some sort of a, uh, I worked with Big Brothers Big Sisters a couple of years ago, New York Public Radio. I pick a, an organization that asks me for some help and awesome. then I work with them pro bono. And the, um, what drives people to be excellent in a not-for-profit is often very different from what does in a manufacturing company. Right. So I mean it's 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 business is a wonderful thing. When I was in graduate school, I looked across the river at the business school and I didn't like these guys very much. I thought they were all very crude, they were only interested in money, and you know, I found them sort of socially uninteresting. Yep. And then when I finally found myself in business, what I realized is that the, the reason why business is really fascinating is that it involves people. Yep. Right? So the basics of business, right? You know, cash flow, time value of money. You know supply chain these are not terribly complicated ideas. <laughs> what makes business so interesting and so challenging is that it involves people yes. who have desires and agendas and passions and imperfections and they 're changing and the world is changing and the industry is changing and that 's what I think uh, makes the whole dynamic so interesting and it also keeps me employed
0: yeah and I, I think that you if you look at organizations a lot of the time that in my opinion, the reason that organisations fail has got very little to do with the product they're selling and much more to do with that they, they weren't ready to do it. So companies will employ a thousand people. It kind of goes back to a previous point, so sorry that I'm, I'm going over myself here, but you'll go to a thousand employees and you, your values haven't been instilled in those people. So you've suddenly quadrupled in size for the people that you had there before have still got the same values and it's still going towards what you're trying to to get to but you've yeah. suddenly employed 700 more people they're here because it's your job and they don't really understand the same road and journey you've been on because they don't need to have so i think it, it i agree with you that it's down to management to instill that vision into the people that join the organization
1: yeah. And I'd pull on that thread a little more even. You've, you've hit on a topic that, that, that has been endlessly fascinating to me. So I've had a chance to work with very, very large multinational companies. I've worked with, with Sony. I've worked with Schlumberger, who is not a well-known company, but they operate in 110 countries. And I think they employ people with up to 150 different passports, right? On the other hand, I've worked with many startups, early stage companies. And the aspect you're talking about is a fantastic case study. If you could do kind of a time lapse photograph of a company, I worked with an organization that was, when I started working with them was five guys writing code in a basement somewhere near Boston. And today it's a publicly traded company with offices in every major American city and parts of Canada. And what you see is that, As the company grows, and this is almost an anthropological insight, um, things change radically. So I I wrote a book a couple of years ago, which ultimately ended up being about why do leaders, particularly very effective leaders, at certain points in their career struggle and sometimes fail? And how do you avoid that? And when my co-author and I started writing the book, it actually began as a book about when companies scale why do leaders struggle? And we ended up saying, look, the, the, the market for books on scaling companies is just way too dense right now. We can't stand out. And our own personal passions ended up being more about how leaders need to think about their role and less about scale was one dimension of that. But you definitely see it. You know, and I, again, I, I look at it anthropologically. When it comes to culture, a startup is a small number of people often in one place. And I say, it's kind of like a village and all of the people can get around the campfire. They can all fit around the campfire and they can listen to the elders talk about the values and the mission and the purpose and how we make decisions and how we deal with failure and all these kinds of things. And then at some point you wake up and you you've got multiple campfires and multiple cities and you're bringing in people who've never met the original vil- village elders, and now the work of creating culture becomes much more of a conscious task. And then you also have people who say, "I don't want to live in a big, a big town. I want to go back to a small place with only one campfire. So I'm going to exit this and um, and go back and start something new."
0: Such a fascinating way to look at it. I've never really thought back from that side, but I completely agree with that when we were looking at a topic to create for this podcast, is something that you you brought up as a topic that I hadn't really considered. So it was, how do you make your manager a better manager? And I think that's a really fascinating thread to, to touch on because it's often misunderstood or, or, or underutilized.
1: So I can say a couple of words about that. I, I, I didn't prepare anything, but I had been thinking about it this morning when, um, when I got the email from, from your colleague Daisy yesterday who said, we'd like you to talk about how you can make your boss a better boss, and I thought, oh, I forgot about that. So (laughs) I have been thinking about it a little bit. Uh, And it is an interesting proposition, because I think there's a couple of sort of counterintuitive ideas here. First of all, I think we all believe that the boss thinks it's his or her job to be a good boss. And I would agree with that, except that most of us, when we're put into leadership roles, have so much on our plates that we don't think enough about what is the role I'm trying to inhabit here as a manager. Uh, Or if we do, we think about it in terms of, am I setting targets? Am I holding people accountable? And there's a lot more to being an effective boss than just what I would call kind of the hard or tangible parts of management. I think that particularly in a knowledge economy, which we live in today, in in an economy where people have expectations from their employers that go beyond just a paycheck, and in a world that's dynamically changing all the time, the, the most important role of any manager is to create individual and organizational capability. To make the individual team members better, to make the team overall better, and to help people think about not just how to be successful in reaching today's goals, but in how to build capability and muscle to deal with tomorrow's challenges and tomorrow because tomorrow is going to throw a whole new set of challenges at us you look at the year 2020 and among many many headlines this has been a very a very headline heavy year it's like well what happens if we throw a global pandemic at everybody how do companies respond how do people respond how do managers respond to that and it's not like we can prepare for the next thing because the next thing is going to be as unrecognizable as this thing nobody expected 12 years ago, an absolute meltdown of our global economy because of all kinds of arcane financial instruments. So I do think that, I'll posit a couple of things. First of all, there are bad bosses. We've all had bad bosses. I don't think that many people wake up in the morning and say, today, I'm going to be a bad boss right? Generally, bosses want to be good bosses. They want to do a good job. Presumably, they've been put in charge because they've shown some talent or capability. And at the end of the day, they're they're being promoted and being compensated depends on their being a good boss. So I think they'd like to be a good boss, but they often don't know how to be a good boss. They often have not had great role models as good bosses. Mm -hmm. And the third thing is, I think they put or we put a little too much pressure on them. So my aha, maybe my aha for the day is, how can you help your boss be a better boss? And I do think there are some things that you can do and should do because at the end of the day, your boss being a better boss makes you happier, more successful, more effective, and you can move on in your career and make more money, get a better job, you know, rise up the corporate ladder. So I'd start out with the idea that I can make my boss a better boss. Now, one way to not go about doing this is to say, hey boss, you're not a very good boss, let me tell you how you can be better. Yep. But the way to do it is to gently engage your boss in what I call developmental dialogues, right? And the key here is to tee these up when there is not a lot of pressure. So. The right time to make your boss a better boss is not when your performance review is happening. It's not when you're really frustrated. It's not when you've been passed over for a promotion. We tend to be too reactive about these things. It's to say on a, let's say quarterly basis, hey boss, I could use some coaching and go out for a pint or have breakfast. I'm a huge fan of breakfast. I think breakfast is the most underrated meal of the day because typically first thing in the morning if we're grabbing a croissant and, a, and an espresso, nothing has gone sideways yet, right? We've, we've woken up, we've gotten into the office and we're gonna go to our first meeting. Let's take a half an hour and go down and you know, grab a breakfast sandwich. And the way to make your boss a better boss is to give her problems. So, and I don't mean tactical problems like I'm struggling with this vendor. Can you go tell them they should reduce their price? I mean, things like, Hey boss, let's look back over. It's uh, you know, we're in, we're in September now. So we're, uh, we're in the beginning of, we're wrapping up the third quarter in most financial calendars. And we're beginning the fourth quarter. So great time right now to sit down and say, let's have a look back over the, the third quarter. Let's have a, I'd love to spend some time with you looking back over the year and I want to take you through boss. Some of the things I think are going really well. Right now, this is important because we have to remind our bosses that, you know, if you pull the camera back, there's been some progress this year and a little bit of this is Machiavellian that you want them to recognize that you've been doing some good work and to give them the chance to respond to that. You know, Mark, that's great, you did, you you managed to get that product out, that release was done, you updated the website, whatever your tasks might have been, and give them a chance to say, is there anything we can build on here? Can we learn anything from this? Hey, if you've done these good things over here, maybe we should talk to this other part of the company, maybe they can learn something from that. Maybe I should take some of this up to the executive team or the board and share some of this with them. So now we're talking about the good things. Of course, the flip side of that is, boss, there are some things that didn't go so well for me in the last quarter, and I'd like to do a postmortem of those things, right? We didn't get that release out. Uh, you know, that big sale we were gonna do didn't happen. I think I have some ideas about why these things didn't work well, and I think uh, there's something we can learn from this. So let me share that. And by sharing that, and again, the the person who is the direct report is leading this conversation. By sharing that, the boss now gets to say very comfortably, not awkwardly, you're right, Mark, you missed that. I don't know, let's talk about why that sale didn't happen. Or, you know, there's something else that has been bothering me, Mark, you don't seem to have a good relationship with so-and-so over in product development. And I think that could be causing some of the friction here, right? So those are, I've got three or four other great questions, but those are just two of the examples of how sitting your boss down and catalyzing what is ultimately a mentoring and coaching and developmental conversation rather than the normal one-on-ones with your boss, which are about whatever the fire of the day is or just kind of tracking the metrics. And these tend to be very boring meetings where we're just going through spreadsheets and we probably didn't even have to have the meeting at all
0: so i would i would love my because i've got a team below me and i love them when they challenge me on stuff because if i'm being honest the most the most interesting thing to be about being a manager is that i want to look in two years time and go wow that person ended up there like that's what i want as a manager that i want to turn around in two years time and great if they still work under me but if they are in two years time at the same position as me or higher than me and they've ended up at amazon or 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 Facebook or something like that in that position, I'm like, great, I've done my job as a manager. That's what I'm trying to achieve. That it's all well and good them hitting their targets within my business. But really, the reason I'm moving into management is that I want to work and coach people. So if they're doing something in two years' time that is above and beyond what I was expecting them to be doing, then I'm like, great, I've, I've achieved my goals. Yes.
1: By the way, that is one of the what I call paradoxes of management. And I'm, I'm actually working on a short article on this right now because over the years, I realized there's a handful of very interesting paradoxes. And the paradox here is that the more people who outgrow me as a leader, the better a leader I am. Now, the more people who leave me because I'm a crappy leader, yep. that's not a good thing, right? Yeah, but yeah. if I am if I am a net positive exporter of talent as a boss, People will notice that. Yes. Yeah. Right. And now it's like, wow, geez, Mark seems to be really good at developing people. Gee, why do all the superstars come out of Darren's group? Yeah, you know, we lose some of them, which that's that kind of sucks. But hey, you know, we're going to give him some new people, and then they're going to be fantastic.
0: Exactly. Exactly. I, I, that's I think a different
1: that... mindset as a boss, right? So now we're going to get into sort of what is the mindset of a great boss, and. I don't know that a lot of, I don't think the majority of, of managers would say that my job is to create great future leaders. Uh, I think that is one of the most important, if not the most important parts of your job. But I don't know that a lot of people think about that because they're still trapped, I think, in a more insecure, how do I advance my own career? Rather than realizing that it's, um, it's like, if you create great people below you, it's going to float you up. And that's going to be one of the most powerful and sustainable ways to advance your own career.
0: I, I, I completely agree with that point. And I, I think what scares me about the second part is, do, do you really want to get into a retirement home at 75 years old and go, I trod on a lot of people in order to get to the position I have? it's not fun like you really want to you want the people that work below you to like you you want the people above you to respect you as a manager of what you're doing with that team so if you're just treading on people and then they're leaving because they're getting burnt out after after 18 months the market is very small especially as we go more international that everyone knows someone and then suddenly when they ask for some advice on oh how good a manager was was darren they're going to start talking about no actually he was crap like he, he trod on me. He made me work to 8 o'clock at night. He never gave me any praise. He never helped me and I, when I needed the, the help I did. And actually, when I joined Business B, yes. I actually become 10 times better than I was under Darren. And yeah, those are the kind of things that are going to kill you uh, in your career.
1: Yeah, I wonder if people recognize this. And it is the power of networks and power of social media to some extent. I, I think that LinkedIn, for example, would, would prefer that people wrote more references. Yep. but but we don't because we're lazy. Yep. Um, however, anytime I'm going to meet somebody new, I look on LinkedIn and I say, oh, look at this. We have 25 mutual connections. You can bet I'm going to call a couple of those people before you and I meet and yep. get a little background. And they're going to tell me either, oh my God, Darren is just the, the most amazing guy. You're going to love him. Great sense of humor, super smart, da, 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 da. Or they're going to go, oh, Mark, yeah, you might want to just skip that meeting. You know, he's really not very uh, focused on other people's success. He's, yeah. you know, he's a difficult personality. He's uh, just out for himself. And these, I mean, we can tap into that in ways that would have been unimaginable 10 or 15 years ago.
0: Yeah, 100%. And I think it's important when you look at big organization, but especially as you look at smaller organizations that suddenly there isn't anyone to hide behind. If you're looking, if you're, cause you were talking about this small company in Boston who have now got uh, places all are, across the country. When, you, when you're in a small organization, you can't hide very much because someone is, cause if you're not advancing them, then no one is. Whereas if you're working for a Bloomberg or a HSBC or Barclays or, sorry I'm just naming big financial organizations here like Microsoft, There's lots of managers in there that can help if if you're not doing it.
1: Yeah. And I do think it's important. uh, And I, I find this, even when I'm working with senior executives, I will ask them, who, who's your mentor? and many of them will say, I don't have a mentor. And I don't know if that's because they believe they've reached a, a point of seniority in, in their career when they don't think they need a mentor, but all of us need mentors. Mm-hmm. And I would tell you that if, you, you know, if you're reporting to a board of advisors, a board of directors now, or you're very senior in a company and you think there's nobody who knows enough to mentor you, you're wrong. But the other flip side of this is very much like with the boss conversation, The mentor relationship depends on the mentee. I don't know if mentee is a word or not, but you know what I mean by that. So if I want to have good mentors, it's my job to engage them, to be interesting, to, you know, share problems with them that I can tap into their wisdom. They're not just going to say, personally, I really do have about a half a dozen mentors. And they're specific mentors. One of them is my co-author. He's run several companies. One of them is a retired guy who I think is the best consultant I've ever met. And I will occasionally call them up and say, I'm struggling with a problem, or yeah. I need to bounce some things off of somebody. These are busy people. Yeah. They don't wake up on, oh, look, it's, it's October 1st. I haven't heard from Mark in three months. I better give him a call and mentor him. Yeah. Like, The duty and the obligation is on me to do that. And the people who have strong mentoring relationships or good boss relationships are the ones who catalyze those conversations. And recognize that I do think that any boss can be a decent coach if you allow them the opportunity and the right kind of environment to have a coaching dialogue.
0: Yeah, 100%. I guess there's a final point of call on this. I always ask people what they think the hiring market will look like post COVID. And I think post COVID is now seeming like further away than probably ever, at least in the UK. So what changes do you think we're going to see in the market for the next couple of years as a result of things that have gone on?
1: I think we're going to see a couple of very, very significant changes. And I think the the companies that figure these things out quickly are going to be the ones that succeed. So first and foremost, I don't think there's going to be some bright line where, okay, now it's March 15th and the world has gone back to normal, right? The world is never going to go back to normal. I don't like the phrase new normal, but the world is a constantly changing and evolving organism, right? Uh, I think what is not going to go back to normal is how people think about employment. And it was a lot of, everyone loves to be a fortune teller and people are saying, well, we're never going back to the office again. Well, that's just crazy. Yes, we are. Now, there are some organizations that have done very well through COVID because they were already essentially working virtually. So, you know, Facebook has said, we're never going back to the office. Well, that's probably because you weren't in the office, other than the fact that you liked going in and basking in this gorgeous office and eating free food, right? You didn't need to be in the office. Um, On the flip side, I work with the head of strategy for one of the big international breweries, right? These people are going, and they already are back in the office, because you can't make beer from home. Or you can, but not enough that you can sell it internationally, right? <laughs> so I think there's a couple of really interesting things that are going to have to happen. Um, first of all, companies that are performing well right now have to realize that they're doing so because they're benefiting from what I call cultural momentum. So they had a strong culture. And six or seven months in, they're surfing that culture. right? But as the company continues to grow and change, as we do a reorganization, as we do an acquisition, as we start changing out senior management and our employees, that culture can no longer depend on that momentum. Momentum is subject to the laws of entropy like anything else. And the companies are going to have to figure out, even if we can't go back right away, how do we rebuild that culture? How do we continue to evolve that culture? How do we energize that culture? I think the second thing that's causing me concern is the rise of a different kind of class system for companies, where there's a sense that these people have to go into the office, and then these people can work from home. And I think that will very, very quickly turn into an undesirable class system Uh, And that will lead to some sort of, you know, revolt of the people who feel like this is not fair. And then I think the third thing is that, and I don't know how this, how conscious this will be, and this may be a question for you, Darren, is as we're looking at employee competencies, will we realize that adaptability and resilience? And, you know, maybe in very simple terms, like, can this person work from home effectively? If we have to shut down again? I don't think this is our last global pandemic. You know, I think we may have crossed now into a world where just given how much we all travel around internationally, that we're going to see more of this. And presumably, we're going to know how to deal with it better in the future. But are we going to be looking to add a competency, which is resilience, tenacity, ability to work alone? But I I think the biggest question for companies is going to be post-COVID, what are our values and what is our culture and how do we work to replenish that, to reinvigorate that, to make that first and foremost, even though we're going to get occasional curveballs like COVID? Because, you know, the war for talent is not going away. It's not just getting people, it's attracting and retaining the absolute best people. And to go back to your earlier point when we began this, this uh, conversation, uh, what is the organization offering its people beyond a paycheck in order to get them to come and then to stay.
0: The, 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 interesting one for me is that when we talk about talent, a lot of the time as a, uh, as a global market, we're talking about bringing in it, bringing in talent, but very few companies for me think about retaining talent. They're thinking about, let's get the 12 months out of this person. And then that's fine. We'll, we'll bring them in. But you are constantly losing the talent within the organization. I know this is um This is a bit me backstepping what I said earlier about me trying to grow teams and make them better and then them leave. But at the same time, I I think it's important that if people are going to leave, they're leaving for the right reason. They're not leaving because they feel like they've grown to a point that they they can't get better. They've left because another opportunity has come along that was really too good for them to turn down. Right.
1: Right. And that goes back to my point about having open dialogues. Remember, leaving your team doesn't have to mean leaving the company. And I think if we're thinking about creating future senior executive general managers, spinning them out of Darren's team to go over and work in research or work in product or work in sales or work in sp- Now I'm getting a chance to see the entire breadth of the company, yeah. which is going to put me in place to be a much better senior manager someday. Uh, and then again, if you, if they do have to leave, then you know, God bless them. And, and ideally, you have worked before they leave that they have groomed their successor. Yep. And by the way, this is something I always tell people, that, oh, I've got a, a really high potential. Um, she's amazing, but I think she's outgrowing her job. I, we're we're going to lose her. And I'll say, well, you know, you want, might want to talk, might want to have a, a discussion with, with her about that. Be transparent about it. What is important to her? You know, is it more money? Is it more responsibility? And one of the things you can do is you can say to somebody, we, I will help you find your next job. But before you leave, whether internally, or internally, I need you to develop a strong successor. And now we're getting that person to think about to go back to one of our themes today. How do I become a better boss, a better manager, somebody who develops people who doesn't just, you know, perform as a rock star by myself?
0: Uh, so we got to the end of the pod. Firstly, I want to say thank you for attending. It's been really, really insightful. You've spoken about a couple of books as you, you've gone along that you've written. So I'm going to leave you for a few seconds to, to plug them because so I think that people okay. are going to want to find these, these books afterwards, hopefully. So, where can people find these books? And secondly, how can people reach out to you after this? Yeah. So uh,
1: I do have a website, nevinsconsulting.com. Pretty simple. Uh, There you can learn more about me and my practice and some of my colleagues and what kinds of things we do. Secondly, I'm on LinkedIn. I wouldn't say I'm active on LinkedIn, but I'm regularly there and you can easily find me there, M-A-R-K. And then my surname is Nevins, N-E-V-I-N-S. If anything I said today was of any interest to you, there's two things you could look at. I write regularly for Forbes magazine, uh, Forbes.com. So if you write my surname in Forbes.com, you'll see all of my articles there, and I'm typically publishing every three or four weeks. My next article is gonna be about, somewhat similar to some of our themes today, why will emotional intelligence be an even more important Executive and manager capability post COVID. Uh, so, forbes.com is a good place to find me. And then finally, I wrote a book, I said 18 months ago, two years ago, called What Happens Now. There's a website for the book, www.whathappensnow.com. And this is the topic of the book we didn't cover a lot today, but what my co author and I were interested in is why do some leaders including very, very successful ones, why do they reach points where they struggle? We call it, they stall. They stall like an airplane or stall like a car. They've been amazing, but they reach a point where whatever used to work for them doesn't work anymore. And the big insight we had is that as managers, we tend to think our job is to change the things around us. New strategy, reorganize the company, build a new product, you know, uh, bring in a new system of some kind. But at these really, really critical points, sometimes the thing that the leader has to change is himself or herself. So the, uh, to your point earlier, as we have grown, what this company now requires from me as a leader is something different than I was before. And if I can't reinvent myself, I will not continue to be successful.
0: Amazing, amazing. Um, and then if people want to reach out to me, if you reach, or, or the team at Haggertrub, should I say, um, if you reach out to hello at um, we will redirect any questions. Thanks again for your time, Mark.
1: Absolute pleasure. Thank you, Darren.